I had the reading go from 1 through 11, although the message this morning is really um, looking at 3 through 11, um, but I thought it was important to at least um, get a little bit of the context and flow of the document. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do um, come before you as your people. We do pray that you would use this passage to speak to us as we sang, to plant your word deep within us, uh, that we may become greater children of God because of our knowledge of you, and that we would live out our lives um, with that truth in love towards others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I thought I'd get something out on the table up front. We had our... Uh, training session for the deacon candidates yesterday and we're in this conference room over here and they're coming in and I won't say who they are but um, one of them goes who's driving the red beamer and I looked down and I lifted my hand and I go but there's an explanation and he goes no it's a really nice car and I thought yeah, but now everyone's going to know that Jeff, the pastor, is driving this red Beamer. And, and here's the thing. You know I drive a little Mini Cooper. 2012, it's paid for. I plan on running it till it dies. Um, it did die on me about a month ago. And literally had to have it towed to the dealer. Um, they gave me a, a loaner car. And I said, this is great. And your car should be ready by the end of the week. At the end of the week, I get a call from a woman named Jamie, and Jamie says, um, Mr. Morrow, the part that we need for your car isn't available in the U.S. We have to order it from Germany. And I said, okay. She goes, I'll give you an update on Monday. And so on Monday, she calls, and she goes, um, Mr. Morrow, I'm going to have to ask that you bring the loaner car back in. We're going to have to put you in a long-term rental. And I said, okay. She said, the part's on back order. It's due to arrive March 29th. So you will see a red BMW out in the parking lot. It's not mine. I am not like the false teachers here wanting to do things for gain, okay? I am not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. Just want to be clear. Especially for what I'm about to do next. All right. Um, Cash is not as popular in use as it was years ago, but that hasn't kept counterfeiters out of the business of trying to make money with with false currency. Cash only represents about 19% of all the transactions that happen in the U.S. And estimators of the Treasury Department say at any one time there's probably about 70 million in false bills that are out there. But it is still common... um, for some businesses. And it's not uncommon to hear in the news where someone has passed counterfeit bills. Just last year in February, Home Depot reported that an employee stole $387,500 from the company over a period of four years. See, she would count the money and she would replace the real money with false currency. Just the old switcheroo. Austin Fain has a company in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It's called Perfect Steel Solutions. They're a roofing contractor. 
And it says his business is very unique and that it is almost all cash. So he has had to learn and train his employees to be what he calls amateur cash experts. And so he says, you can tell if money is a fake, but only if you know what is real, what is true. And so for show and tell today, I have a crisp $100 bill here. Um, Austin Fain says there's ways that you can tell false currency. And here's some of the things that he says to look for. He says the feel of the paper. He says it's not paper. It's actually cotton and linen. That's why they can print and do the things that they do on a real bill. So the feel will be different than just copy paper. So that's one. You'll feel on the surface that the actual lettering is raised because of the ink that they use. So that's another thing. Color shifting. This was amazing. I had to pull this out. This is in a little box that Gail and I keep money tucked away for a rainy day or something. But color shifting is another way you can tell. So if you have any, any bill larger than a $5 bill, you should be able to see this. Here it says 100 in the corner. And if you hold it in the light and then you tilt it, it'll go green, gold, green, gold as you shift it. Another way you can tell that it's true currency versus false currency or counterfeit is they all have a watermark here. That watermark looks just like a splotch of paint. But if you hold it in the light just correctly and tilt it a little bit, Ben Franklin's image comes forward. It's really, really unique. Um, so the watermark is something, the serial number, the spacing that's in there. This is one thing that people will look for all the time. Some people like to pass false currency and it'll have the same serial number on every single bill. They just don't take the time to make different plates, different copies for different things. The other thing is to look for now a plastic strip that's here. And look for the micro printing. You will have print of different sizes, different typefaces all throughout. You can actually hold a Ben Franklin like this, magnifying glass, and you'll see print on his lapel or around his collar. So there are a lot of ways to find and spot false currency. Counterfeit money is a problem. And it's a problem worldwide. Anywhere that currency is exchanged, people will try to take advantage of taking real currency for nothing, what is worthless. You can actually say the same thing about truth, can you not? There is one absolute truth, it is the Word of God, that has been given to us and passed down to us, captured in the Scriptures of the Bible. There is one truth, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He also says in John 17, 17, his high priestly prayer says, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. But truth is always under attack, just like false currency is past. Satan and his dominion are always at work. They're never idle. They're always looking to get you just a little off-center just a little bit away. Because if they can do that, you'll completely miss the mark. I've shared before, my father is a pilot, private pilot. I learned to fly, don't have a license, when I was young, but I could fly the plane. I don't even know if I could fly anymore. 
Um, but something you can do in a plane is once you get up to altitude, you can set the gauges and put it on what's called autopilot. So it'll keep the heading that you're on. It'll keep the altitude that you're on. If the wind blows you a little bit off, it'll correct itself and come back on. And so you can set it up and you can head in one direction that keeps you going that way. If you fly by hand, which a lot of pilots like to do because they like to fly the plane, not go up and just sit back. But there are all kinds of instruments in a plane that you don't have in a car. There's one that gives you your actual relationship to the horizon. And so as you're going along, it, it just goes this way. It'll show you if you're leaning a little to the right or leaning to the left. If you're doing that, you're going to f- fly off course. One that shows you your elevation. One that shows you where you're going on the compass. There's a lot of things that you have to know in order to fly a plane and stay on course. It's the same way for us Christians. We have to know the truth. We have to know sound doctrine. True doctrine. That's what the faith is all about. And so if you don't know it, how are you going to know what's false? How are you going to know what's false? That is what Paul was trying to get across to Timothy. This letter of of Timothy is actually the second letter to the Ephesians. I talked a little bit about this last week in the introduction. And so it's good for you as we're going through this series to go back and read through Ephesians from time to time. Because he will refer to truth in here nine times in 1 Timothy. Seven times he'll expressly say sound doctrine or true doctrine or teaching. Different, different words meaning the same thing. But what the Ephesians had was the true doctrine that is given in Ephesians. He doesn't go out, Paul doesn't go to great lengths here to say, okay, and here's the doctrines that I'm talking about. Ephesians, as I've said before to you, is a, is a very great book. It's put into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 is, is doctrine. And then chapters 4 through 6 is the practical application of that, the living out of the doctrine. You can't live out what you don't know. But the great doctrines that you're given of our election, of our adoption, of our redemption, of our inheritance, of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, of how we were taken by grace through faith out of depravity to become children of God to be saved. All these great truths that are given to us. But the church of Ephesus had lost its way. It had gotten just a little off course. And a little off course over a period of time has made them way off course. So much so that Paul has to pen this letter. And Paul has a sense of urgency in this letter. If you look at all of Paul's writings, in most of his epistles, he will start with a general salutation and then he'll come back and he'll have some kind of thanksgiving. Why he is thankful for them. Why he prays to them. He cuts to the chase in 1 Timothy. He addresses Timothy and then he gets right to it. Charge some not to teach any other doctrine. It's important. It's pressing. Why? 
because Paul had already talked to the elders at the church before in Acts chapter 20. He told them that false teachers would come in. We need to teach true doctrine. We need to be orthodox. We need to be straight. The gospel, as I've said from time to time, hear me now, the gospel is boring. And what I mean by boring is not that it's not interesting. It's the same message. It's never changed from the beginning. The promise of the Messiah, He comes, Christ, He lives a perfect life. He dies, He is buried, He is risen from the dead, He is resurrected, and He has ascended where He is Lord and Lord and King of Kings at the right hand of God the Father. That message doesn't change. But oh, brothers and sisters, the depths of the gospel that can be mined of infinite worth, of infinite value, will take you this lifetime and all eternity to come to a comprehension, a full comprehension of that. So it's boring, but it's not boring. It is, an, it is a message that we just barely scratch the surface. This is the gospel that was entrusted to Timothy. This is the gospel that he is supposed to make sure gets back on track. So this morning I want to look at just four points as we look at this text briefly. I want to look at true children of God, true doctrine, a true use of the law, and true love. So let's begin with true children of God. In verse 5, look at the text that you have before you in verse 5. We're not going to take this necessarily in chronological order this morning. But it says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. In order to know the truth, you need to be a child of God. And so Paul lays out, this is how, these are marks of a true conversion, of a true child of God. They are going to have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Well, what does that look like? What does it mean to have a pure heart? So we studied Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart is, the heart represents the inner person. So there is a cleansing that has happened. To have a pure heart. It is speaking of regeneration where the promises of the Old Testament, I will take out your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will write my law on your heart. You're a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, all things become new. Is that true of you? Do you have a pure heart? Does your inner person want to pursue and follow Christ? Does it want to not only believe, but obey? See, we can say we love Jesus. I love Jesus. But if you do, Jesus says Himself in John's Gospel, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. The Great Commission says, to go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them what? All I commanded you. You want to love 
Christ, love God, not only believe in Him, trust in Him, but obey Him. That's not works. That is gratitude. So we have a pure heart is the first mark. A good conscience is the second one. It is a mind that has now been transformed. It has been renewed with a knowledge of who God is and who he or she is. We don't really understand sin until the law that we're going to see in a moment confronts us with our sin. And then we see a need for righteousness. A good conscience has been renewed. Paul tells the Romans, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We we should be diligent as disciples, followers of Christ, to continually be renewing our minds. Do you read the Word of God regularly? Do you contemplate the Word of God regularly? This is how God speaks to us. This is how God reveals Himself to us. This is how we grow to Christ-likeness is through His Word. Gail and I were talking about this last night and um, a friend of ours has said, you know what? God uses words. God uses words. And what we find from the counterfeit people here, they'll use words too, but they're going to go beyond words. Beyond words. So the second mark, a good conscience, is a mind that is renewed by the Word of God. Now the thinking has changed. You will take every thought captive now. Is this good? Is this true? Is this worthy of my attention? Or do I bind it and cast it out? Set my mind on things above. The third mark is that you'll have a sincere faith. That word for sincere is where we get our word hypocrisy. For this period of time, this word for hypocrisy was used by pottery makers, meaning without wax. If you said this pottery was without wax, it meant that you not only shaped it on on the wheel and fired it in an oven and put the glaze and the paint or whatever that's on, on that, but there was no cracks in that process. Now, people would want to take damaged pottery that had cracks in it and would fill it with wax and then they would paint over it yet again so you wouldn't see that you were buying damaged goods it was counterfeit it wasn't the real deal it's not what you think you're paying for it was without wax how many times have you listened to people particularly younger people and they talk about visiting a church or they talk about Christians and they say, just not authentic. They're not the real deal. They're hypocrites. Sometimes we can be called hypocrites by the world. We'll say one thing and we'll do another. A mark of a true child of God is a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. What we say is what we do. What we believe is what we live out. Does anyone ever recognize you and say, you know what, you're different. There's something about you that's different. I hope people can say that about us, that they will see us without hypocrisy. So those are some of the marks of of the true children of God. Counterfeits won't live up to that. Counterfeits will 
say the right things, but they won't do the right things. So one of the things that we need to do if we're holding to true doctrine, if we see people in the church, there's nothing wrong with you to go up and say, hey brother, what's going on? That's how discipleship works. You, you ask them questions. You, you're looking out for their well-being. You're, you're expressing love towards them. You want to get them back on course. They're a little off-center. 2 Timothy 3.16 All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for what? For teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness so the man or woman can be equipped to do the work of ministry. But you hear those things? Two positives that are bookends of two negatives in the middle. The Word of God is for teaching and training in righteousness. At the same time, it is for correction and it's for reproof. You don't love a brother or sister in Christ if you're not willing to correct and to reproof. And you can do that in love. Gail and I attended a church at one time where the communion service was a completely separate service. And it was an open service, meaning there was no set format agenda. There was a format. But what would happen is the meeting would start, someone would pray. Someone would call out for a hymn. Someone might pray again. And then at some point, someone would stand up and share from the Scriptures. And then someone would give up, stand up and give thanks for the bread. And then the bread would be passed out. And someone would give thanks for the cup and so on. And then close with some songs and but everything was as someone was led by the spirit to do that they did that now here's where I'm going with this the open meeting was open to where any man could get up and teach women will get into that in chapter 2 of 1st Timothy but women were allowed to teach in that particular meeting of the church but let me tell you that those elders would listen. If it was a counterfeit gospel, if it was something that did not line up with Scripture, they corrected. They would stand up and they would call it out lovingly, but they would say, this is what is true. They would simply go, this is what's true. I need to, to correct this. So my brothers that are elders, do you correct and do you reproof? Or do you just teach and train in righteousness? I have to ask myself that question. I've got to be honest with myself. I need to do a better job of doing all things and all things well. It doesn't mean we browbeat. It doesn't mean we hammer on people. But we look at the whole person. What do they need? It may need me that they just need encouragement, that they need teaching, that they need training. And I might pour all of myself into that person in that way. But sometimes I need a little correction. I sat with an elder last week in my office after the worship service. And we were talking to someone that needed a little correction, a little training. And you know what? They received it. They were thankful. 
they appreciated that we would love them to the extent that we would point something out to them. Isn't that amazing? Proverbs says that a wise man will take correction. All right, let's look at true doctrine then. Timothy is charged to uphold true doctrine. And what he does is Paul cuts the chase and he says, you've got to charge some not to teach any other doctrine. Because certain persons, certain persons had been doing just that. They were, getting, they were teaching different doctrine. They were devoting themselves to myths and genealogies. It's interesting that Paul doesn't call them out by name. But as I shared last week, this is a letter that's not only personal to Timothy, but it's public for the whole church to read. Can you imagine sitting in that meeting? Someone, someone reading this letter to the Ephesians that's also to Timothy. And it says, certain persons are teaching a different doctrine. Those that know the truth, they know who's being talked about probably looking around. Now you have to understand that if Ephesus wasn't just one church building like this where we all gather together. It was house churches. This was happening all throughout the town. And the thing is, is some were, that were committing the false teaching were women. Some were elders. Some might have been deacons. But Paul prophesied some would be elders in Acts chapter 20. So this is pervasive. He's saying certain persons. So this letter gets read and you could just see the, hmm, over there. But Paul doesn't want Timothy or anybody else to simply point a finger. He's calling you to action. If we're disciples, we make disciples. Even if it means correction and reproof because that's loving true doctrine needs to be upheld they were preaching something that was counterfeit counterfeiters make counterfeit money they make it look real to take your real money in place of worthless money now, one question that you might have is, why bother? Why bother? Why bother with trying to correct false teaching? Why do false teachers even do what they do? I remember being in seminary and taking a Gospels class. Dan McCartney was the professor um, for this particular class. He used to sit right back up over in that section over there. And we are studying Boltman and Schleiermacher and all these liberal theologians. And I just, I, it was so frustrating. I, I, I had expectations of what I thought seminary was going to be before I went to seminary. And I think I've shared before, I learned more in my discipleship than I learned in seminary. Seminary gave me some different tools um, some different ways to look at things, put some structure to things. But I learned more from being discipled in the Scriptures before I went to seminary than after or during seminary. So just an encouragement to you. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't. You've got the Word of God right in front of you. Find someone and say, hey, will you sit down with me? Will you be my mentor? Will you disciple me? 
do that. That's the way to grow. But this idea of why bother? So I'm in the elevator with, with Dr. McCartney. And, and we're writing down, we met in a building in downtown Dallas. That's where Westminster Seminary was. And we're the only ones on, on, the, on the elevator. And I, he could tell I'm frustrated. He said, are you okay? I go, I just don't get it, Mr. McCartney. I, I don't get it. I go, why do they bother? And he goes, well, you're passionate about Jesus, right? I said, yes. He said, you want to study the Word of God, right? Yes. So do they. It's just their interpretation. I go, but it's wrong. It's wrong. I'm like, why bother? If you read 1 Timothy, it begins to answer the why bother. What they're up to. False teachers during this period of time did it for money. That was just one of the reasons that they did it. They had itinerant teachers that would go from place to place. And they would teach things that would tickle people's ears. We are gullible. Let's admit it. I, we, we can see a, an advertisement. We can hear it on the radio. We can see it on the internet or something like that. And we're real quick to get our wallets out. And I got to have that. Then you get it and you go, doesn't do what it's supposed to do. I've been taken. Had a friend of mine. I'll get back to Dan McCartney in just a moment. Michael Gaddy. I worked for, for him when I was at Levi Strauss. Never forget his name because he would introduce himself as Gaddy Fat Daddy. And so, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't fat. He was just, it's a way you would remember his name. And so, he was, had a diet that he was supposed to follow and he wasn't able to do caffeine. And every, I went to lunch with him one day and after lunch he goes, hey, you want to go buy Starbucks? I go, I thought you weren't supposed to have caffeine. He goes, well, I get a decaf, low fat, um, no sugar latte. And just put aspartame in it. He goes, I call it a why bother. He goes, I get it for the taste. My point here is sometimes we like what people are saying. It, it tickles the taste buds in our ears. Do you remember mid to late 90s? All the fuss about Y2K? You remember? The, the world was going to end, Right? You, you've got to buy all these packets of food because the whole computer system is going to crash down. We're not going to have electricity. You need all these survival supplies, all this kind of stuff. Some of us bought into that. It's false teaching. It was based on myths, fables, stuff made up, and people profited from that. That's what false teachers did. They profited off of your gullibility. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be gullible with the Word of God. If the church is to do what it's supposed to do, we need to be people of the Word. Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy Word is truth. These people wanted to teach things that were not in accord 
with sound doctrine. In chapter 6, it talks about the very thing that they do. It says in verse 3 that they teach what does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. They are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved of mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They don't want the peace and purity of the church. They want gain. They want to stir things up. Don't you love it when you get with someone and and you start to have a conversation about something and then you get on something that you're going to disagree on? and the conflict and the argument ensues. Neither one of you wants to give way and break ground. And all of a sudden, it's a big blow-up and a big argument. It can be even between people within the church. And you walk away and you go, wow, that wasn't very loving. Satan and his dominion wants to stir up the church. They want to get a soft bubble. Come up with innovative ideas. Here's things that we can do. And so we need to have true doctrine. These people have swerved from the faith. They have wandered away. This is apostasy that's taking place. They're turning away. Step by step, they're drifting. And before they know it, they're far away. I've shared this illustration before. Jay Strack, I saw him at First Baptist Church decades ago. He was a scuba diver. Loved to dive. And he went to Hawaii. And he and his best friend had already made all the arrangements. We're going there for a conference, but just off Oahu, there is some great diving there, and we're going to go. And so they gathered their gear, and they went. The one thing they didn't bring is oxygen tanks. They, they, you just can't put them on a plane, obviously. So they do. And they go, and the guy, the guy says, where are you diving? Oh, we're going off Oahu over there. And he goes, be careful of the drift. Jay and this other diver go off of Oahu. There's a current there. And they're down and they're diving and they're seeing the coral and they're seeing things. And what they don't realize is the current is taking them further and further away. What they see isn't all reality. They go to the surface And they take a look around and all of a sudden Oahu is way off in the distance. A little bit of panic comes in. How are we going to make it back? They were already tired. They took the tanks and they dropped the tanks. They paid the charge of tanks. And they had to swim their way back. And it took them hours All the while, they just didn't listen to watch the drift. The Word of God tells us as believers, we went through Hebrews, if you remember. It warns us, it warns us, be careful. The Word of God keeps us anchored. It makes us steadfast, immovable, because we're in Christ, we're in His Word. That's what we need to be. These false teachers, 
would use myths and genealogies. They'd, they'd tickle the ears. And you go, well, how can that be? What, what, what were they doing? Philip Ryken, who's with 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, talks about how these myths and genealogies all got started. You see, back in the Old Testament times, there was a book that was written, the Book of Jubilees. And it was written somewhere between 135-105 B.C. And it's a retelling from a Pharisaic point of view of the Old Testament from creation to Mount Sinai. But in this, they take great creative license. Did you know in the book of Jubilee that you can see the entirety of names of all of Adam and Eve's children? And Noah's children and his children's children, and Enoch's children, and their children. These genealogies that no one can substantiate. And then they go further to talk about biographies of these people and what they've done. And it's just to get you to go in a different direction. We see that today in different things. The Book of Mormon. You go stay in... A Marriott or in Utah or something like that and you'll see in the nightstand there's a Book of Mormon. Okay? Mormons will say, yeah, we use the Bible. But soon enough, they'll, they'll slip you the Book of Mormon. Anybody ever read any, any of the Book of Mormon? I tried while I was on a business trip one day and looking at it. You know you can't substantiate the people that are in there, the cities that are in there, the currency that is all false. Teaching a false doctrine and a false Christ. It is a counterfeit gospel. They call themselves the Church of Latter-day Saints. They're not. The Apocrypha. Catholic Bibles have it. All these writings that the Jewish scribes said, no, it's not part of the Old Testament. They were looked at for canonicity, but never accepted. The Gospel of Thomas contains 120 secret words on the living of Jesus. Or how about the Bible Code? Have you heard of the Bible Code? Another book that was written. This one took mathematical equations, deciphering letters within Genesis, and came up with an algorithm that predicted the Gulf War, the assassination of Yatsik Rabin, a former prime minister of Israel, the Kennedy assassination, the lunar moon, lunar moon landing, the election of Bill Clinton, the Holocaust, all these different things. The Da Vinci Code, that's another one. Maybe you even saw the movie. It's all based on fables. It's based on myths. We are people of the truth. Now I'm going to step on toes. Okay? There is a series, I'll call it a TV series, and you can stream it. And let me just say at first that it has all kinds of rave reviews. How well it's done. How good the acting's done. How it does do some things with Scripture. The series is The Chosen. I'm not saying you can't watch it. You are welcome to watch it. 
as your pastor, I want you to know you need discernment and you need wisdom. When you watch that television series, you want to watch that? I would encourage you to read Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Maybe even John. Now, I have watched three episodes of that, two a long time ago. I went back and watched one this week to see if what I remembered was true. And the creative license, I get creative license. I Look, you want to watch it for the, its entertainment value? By all means. But don't let that tell you who Jesus is. That's why we were given the Word of God. God uses words. He uses stories. He has given it to us in the Word of God. That's what we are to have. But if you watch The Chosen, I get the creative license. It tells a good story. But the great catch that Peter gets, the, the implication that it puts forward, is that's because he had debts and back taxes that he had to do. That he had tried to conspire with the Roman soldiers to turn in fellow Israelites that were fishing on the Sabbath. I'm going, where is that in Scripture? If I can just get you off just a little bit, just off-center a little bit. My, my, again, you can watch it, but, but please have some discernment. Don't let that shape who Jesus is, who the disciples are. Don't let it recreate Peter or Matthew. Let the Scriptures tell you. God gives us His Word for the express purpose that you may have a knowledge of redemptive history. He gives you everything that you need for life and godliness, no more, no less. We are people of the book. We need to be those of true doctrine. I am... Let me... Sprint. Proper use of the law. Paul puts the law forward here. And what he is doing in this, because it it's expressed differently than it's anywhere else. And if you go to these things and work your way through, you will notice that these couplets that are spoken about deal with all Ten Commandments. You can start with the end and work your way back. Or you can start in the middle with what's easy, murder. Those who strike their mother and father, honor your mother and father, and so on. There is a proper use of the law. In Reformed circles, we'll talk about law and gospel. Three uses of the law. One is to restrain sin, civil use. The other is a spiritual use, to convict you of your own sin, cause you to flee to Christ. Paul said, I didn't know what coveting was until the law showed me. That's a use of the law. The other use is that of a practice. What do I want to do to grow in Christ, to please God? Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments in two things. What is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The first four commandments deal with loving God. The last six deal with loving your neighbor. So there is a proper use for the law. And we need to use it in a proper manner. 
We use it in witnessing. We use it to reflect on ourselves and the way we're living out. So there's a true use of the law. We don't use it, as we'll see in 1 Timothy later, to drive people to asceticism, to legalism, to trying to live by works, to create their own righteousness. So there's a true use of the law. And then there's true love. This is where I want to wrap up today. Let's be honest. I've said a lot about true doctrine this morning. And for some of us, we hear true doctrine and that word doctrine strikes us and we go, man, that word's kind of rigid. It's inflexible. I don't know how, how practical it is. Doctrine's practical, brothers and sisters. It's practical. But Paul wants you to remember your aim in handling true doctrine. It's love. It's love. The aim of our charge is love. With a true, with a pure heart, with a good conscience, and a sincere faith, we learn that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Love of this kind is the best advertisement for true doctrine. It's the best test of our theology. Do we have love? Liberal theology, liberalism, wants love without doctrine. It's willing to sacrifice error, truth. As long as people just get along, kumbaya. On the other hand, and this is speaking about us at times, We want the doctrine, but not so much the love. That's what legalism is, doctrine without love. What to do and what not to do. Jesus is the personification of love and truth. Of love and doctrine. Of speaking the truth in love. Of loving God and of loving others. That's what we need to be. I directed you back to Ephesians. When you get into the practical part of Ephesians after learning all that doctrine, Paul will say, walk in love. Walk in light. Walk in wisdom. That's how you're going to love the brethren and love others in it. Do you practice the doctrine of love? And do you love doctrine? The better you understand God's grace in Christ, the more you desire to be like Christ. Then the more you reflect on the love of Christ, the more you will reflect on love for others. And your life will begin to overflow with a zeal for the lost, a love for the church, a compassion for the needy, If we're not great lovers of Christ, we will never be great lovers of people. And that's what God did for us in Christ. For God loves us so much that He sent forth His only begotten Son. Can we hold the truth? And can we love others in that way? 
Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you have loved us and you have taught us. Let us be recipients of the truth. Let us live it out, but let us not live it out without love. Let us not just be clanging symbols. Let everything that we do be steeped in love. Let us speak the truth in love. Let us live out our doctrines of the faith with love for you and toward others, that you might be glorified and all people would be drawn to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.